My name is Angela Jager and I'm here with my co-host Marcely Kehoe. In today's episode of the H&A podcast, we welcome Abigail Newman from the Rubinianum and University of Antwerp and Marije Osnabrugge from the University of Geneva. So you are here to discuss your forthcoming edited volumes and maybe you like to start with giving some background about your books, Abigail? Sure, I, I can start. Um, so the book that I'm co-editing is called Many Antwerp Hands, Collaborations in Netherlandish Art. And I'm co-editing it with my dear friend and colleague, Lineke Nijkamp, also with the Rubenianum. And basically collaboration um, in the Low Countries in, yeah, in the 16th and 17th centuries was something that had interested both of us for a long time. And we, in I guess, I think it was around 2015 that Lineke and I first talked about organizing a conference um, devoted to this topic um, at the Rubenianum as part of the festivities for the Baropiar um, in 2018. And it's a, it's a topic that art historians have long somewhat glossed over because it, in many ways, d- doesn't sit comfortably with um, 19th century notions of authorship and artistic genius that have long been sort of, you know, formative and, and hard to break out of in the field. But of course, in the past, yeah, at this point now, at least three decades, various scholars have treated this, um, you know, ha- have spot you know, or highlighted collaboration and its importance in early modern art history and certainly in the context of the early modern Low Countries, both Northern and Southern Netherlands. So we felt that there was really a need for a sort of state of the question. Um, and so we did this, this conference in 2018. And then um, we were quite delighted with the, the papers at this conference and the dialogues um, and we'd also done something a little bit different at the conference, which was that in addition to inviting speakers, we had um, invited chairs to, you know, sort of a, a group of what I viewed as sort of all, all-star cast of, of people whom I thought had written really interesting things related to this topic, to more senior scholars, to be moderators, you know, chairs, but also to give sort of longer introductions of each session. So the sessions were generally shorter in terms of the quantity of papers, but they had extended introductions by the chairs, which I think um, really helped the dialogues and the sort of dynamic quality of the conference. And then um, for the book, we decided not to do conference proceedings. So this is something yet yeah, Mariah will talk about also, but to, to do really a selected volume where we, we tried to think what, what does this question need at this point in the field? What are, um, what are sort of the, the critical elements of of this topic that we feel like need to be addressed to try to produce a book that would give a sort of overview and be both interdisciplinary, but also um, methodologically diverse. And that would give a range of um, theoretical reflections about um, artistic collaboration in the Low Countries and also um, present some case studies of particular artist um, partnerships and also some specific um, collaboratively made objects. So we wanted it to be broad enough, but also coherent enough and specific enough to give a real overview. And so it's focused mostly on um, Antwerp in the 16th and 17th centuries. Yes, well, there are a lot of similarities, which is the reason, I guess, uh, Angela invited both of us uh, to talk about the volumes, which will both appear with Brepols and were both partially based on a conference and in our case uh, it was the second conference related to the project of which I'm a part at the University of Geneva uh, which is called Un siècle d'or penser la peinture hollandaise du XVIIe siècle so its aim is to rethink certain uh, 
preconceptions about Dutch art. So the first conference we had was about the concept of golden age and to which degree it is a historical concept already conceived in the 16th, 17th century and to which degree the historiography of the study of Dutch art has uh, shaped this idea. And then this first conference was uh, very much also a cultural question. And for the second conference, we wanted to zoom in a bit more on, on the arts, on painting in particular. Although we would have liked also some papers on engraving and uh, sculpture, but we didn't <laughs> receive any uh, proposals. Uh, and so we, we focused on uh, what to, uh, according to us, so the director of the project is uh, Jan Blanc. He has worked uh, extensively on the conceptualization of uh, genres in, in 17th century Dutch art. And we wanted to do a bit the same as what we did for the Golden Age. So look at the degree to which it was a historical concept. And after that, also how historiography gave shape to, to this concept. Uh, so we had a conference in uh, Haarlem in the Frans Hals Museum. There was some very interesting discussion and we decided to publish it as part of a series that we started with the project called Gouden Eeuw, New Perspectives on Dutch 17th Century Arts. Uh, so this would be the, the second volume of this series, uh, like was the case for Abigail, although also a little bit different. Almost half of the papers that are included in the volume were presented originally at this conference, and the other half was partially people who were present at the conference. And also what I found very interesting, one of the, the peer reviewers offered to contribute. So she was oh, very wow. interested. <laughs> yes, it was very, very nice uh, because you always feel like you're bothering people with asking for peer reviews. But this person was so interested to the degree that, uh, that she offered to contribute an article which fits in very well. And we had uh, also a nice balance between PhD students, uh, some mid-career scholars, and also some very advanced people contributing. So the volume is titled Questioning Pictorial Genres uh, in Dutch 17th Century Art, and it should appear uh, in the fall. Um, one thing that um, Mariah and I both immediately noticed about these two volumes that we're editing is that... Um, um, Mariah's volume is focused essentially on Dutch art and my volume is focused essentially on Flemish art. That being said, we're both, and one thing that, um, that we've talked about or had dialogues about for years is since we both are very focused on Dutch and Flemish artists and Dutch and Flemish artists outside the Low Countries. So um, in Mar Mariah's case, Naples, and in my case, uh, Madrid, but for her, more broadly Italy and for me, more broadly Spain. And so... Uh, one thing that we were thinking um, is sort of interesting about these volumes that we're editing is that contrary to our, our strong feeling about the importance of thinking about uh, the low countries broadly and within the world, the, the, um, and you know, certainly with the global turn, the need to, to focus more broadly than a very specific geographical region, um, you know, but we're both zeroing in, in a sense, on a, on a specific region in, this, in these volumes. So Mariah, I'm wondering, um, do you, what your take on this is and, and why for the genre book, um, the Dutch uh, context s seemed to be the, the, 
place really that this should be situated. No, it, it is indeed uh, quite astonishing that even though we're very much aware of the fact that there's infinite links between the two regions, that, that the resulting books do focus on uh, respectively the northern and the southern uh, Netherlands, although both of us, I think we have uh, also some articles included about uh, other regions and yeah. most yeah. notably Italy for both of us, I think, which is also yeah, something that we struggled a little bit with because we wanted also other regions. And in the end, we have uh, one article also uh, on uh, 18th century uh, French reactions to Dutch theoretical concepts about uh, genres. But yes, it, it feels a bit awkward to talk about pictorial genres, which not all of them, but a lot to a large degree originate in uh, 16th century uh, Antwerp or uh, Flemish uh, art. But at the same time, for the purpose of this conference, it's quite, well, I found a way to, to uh, um, defend this, uh, the fact that we, we focus mostly on, uh, on the northern uh, region, because the historiography for Dutch art, uh, and that was the purpose of the, the, the conference, is one of the purposes. Um, so the purpose of the conference was to also discuss the way um, uh, historiography shaped the way we see 17th century art. And for Dutch arts, uh, it's often described as something idiosyncratic for uh, that region, different from the, the rest of Europe, Catholic Europe also, where um, this variety of genres is um, one of the most characteristic uh, aspects of Dutch art. So in that sense, it is uh, defendable, uh, I think. We had some people present at the conference who were working on Flemish art. Uh, maybe they were dece uh, de deceived by the, the conference because we didn't talk so much about it, <laughs> although it was always lingering in the background, I think. But we did, there are fewer people uh, after now that the project by, um, the very important project by um, Philip Vermeile and Caroline de Klippel uh, finished, I think that was a um, high point of focus on this type of exchange. And I think it's now put on the back burner. Um, and for you, how did this, um, did you not receive uh, proposals for uh, Northern art? We also initially um, had conceived of this project quite broadly. Um, so for the, the call for papers for the conference was very much sort of 1400 to, to 1700 or even 1750 low countries and also you know, regions or exchanges related to low countries artists, but outside the low countries instances of um, collaboration there. But it was notable that um, Certainly at the conference, we had a bit a broader sort of, you know, geographically broader contributions, but there was clearly a focus on Antwerp. So not even just Southern Netherlands, but Antwerp specifically. And this dovetails with the, um, the general preconception in art history or in, in Netherlandish art history, that this is an Antwerp specialty that gets said very often that, you know, Antwerp artists collaborate in a very particular way. And so one, um, one question then, of course, of the book was to try to think about to what extent is this an Antwerp phenomenon? And so the book does really focus a lot on Antwerp, but it also, in important places, I think, questions what are the grounds for thinking this is an Antwerp specialty? 
And in the end, there is some numerical evidence, and Philippe Vermeulen has a good essay on this, for a case to be made that, that this may indeed really have been an Antwerp specialty and, and done much more in Antwerp than in other places. But then there are also essays um, in the book like that of Elizabeth Honig, who thinks about the aesthetic that we associate with Antwerp collaborative paintings and whether that in fact has to do with collaboration at all. Is this, isn't the aesthetic sometimes the same in paintings that were not done by two artists, but one. And so that's an interesting sort of challenge to this view. But another thing I think is that in thinking about the topic of collaboration, I certainly felt at the end, at the end of my introduction, I, I, I try to put out a call for, I think we're trying to focus in this book on the state of the question, particularly in Antwerp, but there's definitely a need to look at this topic more broadly and certainly in the, in the Northern Netherlands. And I was, I'm, I'm hoping that, that work continues um, in that regard, because I think you do see quite similar kinds of collaborations occurring in the Northern Netherlands, possibly less frequently, but you, you see it. And so that's um, a lacuna that it would have been nice to start to fill in the book, but in the end, um, I think maybe is, is worth, a, worth a book unto itself. Maybe to continue along those lines, we met uh, some yeah. nine years ago uh, during um, an expert meeting, a writer's meeting uh, for a volume uh, of the Netherlands Kunsthistorische Jaarboek on migration. And at the time, as you said, you were working on Flemish artists in, in Madrid and I was working on Netherlandish artists in, in Naples. And I'm currently very interested in this, uh, the question of the development of artistic practices and also the diffusion of yeah. these practices across yeah. Europe and I was wondering to which degree does artist mobility play a role in shaping uh, collaboration practices in Flanders uh, or is absolutely it, no it's a what, what, how, well, yeah, what could you say about that that's no it's a it's a terrific question I think mobility definitely plays a role and the sort of diffusion as you say of artistic practices across Europe is very much of interest to me. And we see this in the, the book in terms of um, the, in particular, the connection between Flanders and Italy um, and how um, some, one of the early cases, for example, of artists working together is a bunch of, of quite mobile artists. So um, Hans Rotenhammer, a German with um, Paul Brill and Jan Bruegel, the elder, both Flemish artists, but their collaborations all begin because they're all in Rome. And then as they move around and you know, there's movement to Venice and then there's movement back to Antwerp, you see even at particular moments, these artists shipping panel or little copper plates to each other to work together. So that's, that's a way in which collaboration, even you know, an Antwerp specialty potentially seems to be one of the earliest examples that you're seeing of that among Antwerp artists is actually happening in, in Rome and, or starts in Rome. So that's a way in which the sort of mobility forces us to yeah to reconsider to what extent was Italy quite formative in in artists working together in this way um, and Bernard Eichema's essay in the book um, which deals with collaboration but also connoisseurship talks about a, a little bit how some of these things are present already in Italy and thinking about the conjunction of different styles and the collaboration of different artists and how that then moves to the north via among other things traveling artists so um so I think it's definitely relevant. What just one other um, essay example that I would give from the book is by uh, Julia Lilly and talks about collaboration between uh, Crispin de Passa, the elder, and Matthias Quad in Cologne. And that's again two um, 
yeah, two Flemish immigrants whose collaboration actually takes place mostly in Cologne and they're part of an expat, well, expat refugee is a better word. They're part of a refugee community in Cologne um, of religious refugees, but they're pr presumably come into contact with one another, uh, particularly because they are Flemish immigrants there. And then that sort of probably helps, you know, trigger their collaboration. So um, I think it's def mobility and immigration are definitely questions that come into play in terms of how this is happening. And I talk a little bit in my introduction about instances in which collaboration does or doesn't transfer to, to the Spanish context. So ways in which paintings are imported. And then in some cases, the collaborative practice is also imported and Spanish artists start collaborating, but that's very specific and very limited. And you don't see that happening as broadly or in the same ways as, as it does in, at least in the Southern Netherlands. Mariah, do you want to say something about this and how um, in, in the genres book, how you felt that mobility and immigration, these questions or the global, global questions come into play? Yeah, in, in, in our volume, uh, it also uh, is quite important in two ways, I would say. In one way, through artists' uh, mobility and also towards Italy, uh, like I said before. Um, so we have an article by Tanja de Niele about uh, Jacob Swanenburg's uh, um, spokerijen, um, uh, so depictions of, of hell and how this travels from the Southern Netherlands to the Northern Netherlands, uh, and then how it is appreciated uh, by uh, Italian artists and also mostly uh, by Italian collectors. So there you see like a, uh, also how this, this is very much an international uh, uh, phenomenon. And what is also quite interesting is that uh, one section of the, the volume is about the definition of genres so we explain and this is well known amongst artists of course that in art literature um, there is no conceptualization of genres so there's no conventions no descriptions this comes much later in the 18th century uh, in the context of the french academy uh, which is, of course, a problem if you are talking about this period with this framework in mind. Uh, and the first section of the book, people aim at giving alternative ways of defining uh, subject matter and, and genres and how these definitions take shape. And what is quite interesting to see is that with uh, both chronological and geographical distance, it is more easy to to define. So in the case of the Bambo Chanti, this becomes arguably uh, our subgenre only in the eyes of uh, later French uh, collectors. And in the case of the, the temporal, uh, the chronological distance becomes visible in the article by Norbert Middelkoop, who shows how the corporate group portraits were exhibited. Uh, through the years, uh, how this helped to define the genre. So I think for the process of definition, the distance is quite important. But of course, in this uh, mobility, uh, something gets lost or distorted as well. But I think that's that's quite visible, uh, but it's it's in the background of, uh, of some of the articles uh, of our volume. It's interesting. A, a common line of inquiry, I think, in both of our um, both of these books is a kind of search for for how seventeenth century artists and collectors and writers 
conceptualized and thought about artistic practices, whether the, the sort of how they treated subject matter in the case of, of genres and how, um, how they viewed collaboration in the case of, um, of, of the book I'm co-editing. Um, and these are things that we as modern day art historians routinely um, theorize or, and have all kinds of, you know, and, and they form a sort of frameworks for how we talk about these things. And one thing I think both of these books try to do is to set, step back from the modern conceptions and try to historicize how these things were thought about then and the sort of um, reception of these practices also then. So I guess I was wondering, Mariah, how you, um, or what you see as some of the, the kind of fundamental or most fruitful kinds of sources, broadly speaking, that the scholars in your book use to, to try to get at that, the question of how people thought about these things then, how, how genres were thought about or not and, and articulated or not then. So of course, it could be seen as, as a problem that uh, art literature uh, and sources um, do not talk about these conventions uh, of genres. And uh, when uh, subjects are mentioned, it is quite hap haphazardly and not so much to define them. Uh, but I think the authors of, of the volume, the contributors, have very much succeeded in using a wide variety of sources to, to see what was there uh, in the period itself. And so they use inventories, uh, and um, one of the authors, uh, Wei Xuan Li, she made a comparison to terms used um, in the inventories, but also in Sismus uh, Schilderregister, uh, and compared this to not the, the genre categories, but the tags added to the uh, RKD uh, database to see to which degree, rather than the genre categories, these tags, so these more direct reflections of the artworks are a satisfactory way uh, to uh, identify artworks. So that, uh, yeah, so they worked with uh, inventories and of course art literature can be used in other ways as well. And I think in some cases, which is very interesting is uh, people returning to the artworks themselves or in some cases the oeuvres of uh, specific artists and try to identify the origin of certain elements uh, and also certain uh, meanings uh, related to these artworks uh, and see the network of subjects uh, that are there. So it's not only written sources uh, that, that were used. And, and is, is collaboration as such mentioned in uh, contemporary sources or is it also something you have to uh, search for uh, intently? Yeah, so it's, um, it's definitely something that that is described in some of the, um, certainly in, in 17th century sources. So the, our book opens actually with um, Doreen Thomas's uh, overview of, of the sort of reception of, of this practice in the art literature and, and, and in sources, yeah, written sources more broadly. And so you do find descriptions of artists working together, for example, in, um, in its Hilder book, uh, Van Mander, but you also, um, you don't find him describing it as a phenomenon unto itself or talking about it as a thing. It's more that in the course of, of um, his discussions of artists, he, he'll mention a particular artist working with another artist. So I, I think that um, it's there, but you have to go looking for it, not in, um, in sort of a description of, of it unto itself as a, as a practice, but you find references to it 
um, in all kinds of places. And, and um, Doreen's essay talks about that, but we also, um, you see in a number of the essays in this book, references to um, not only art treatises, but inventories. So as in your case, um, and how inventories can give us a sense of how collaboration was was viewed by, by contemporaries. But how was it viewed uh, by contemporaries? Well, so that's one of these things that in art treatises, there is often um, a kind of negative view of it, that artists are doing this because one of them doesn't have the requisite skills or, or perhaps neither. And so that's using artists specializing and each doing what he, in most cases he, can do best and that it's not viewed positively. Um, that being said, the, the presence in tons of inventories of references to, um, to both artists or to two artists' names uh, for a given painting uh, strikes me anyway as a, a clear sign that there was great appreciation for this, that if you bother when you're drawing up an inventory to note two artists' names, there, there was clearly, you know, so the, the art theoretical view of it in the period is probably not necessarily a great um, indicator of the broader reception of this which I think was more positive than one would gather from just looking at the art treatises. So it's a, it's a good question. I think it's, it's more nuanced than just what the art treatise writers say in terms of how it was viewed. But I would say also, like, like you said for your book, that um, a number of the essays also, in addition to looking at written sources, delve in again to the visual sources in, in very um, rigorous ways. So among other things, there's a, a terrific technical analysis by Angela and um, Jürgen Vadim that uses technical analysis to sort of read backwards and deeper um, to, to consider how a painting by um, Jan Brueckel and Sebastian Franks was made, look at the process, and then from that to think again about what that says about how both of these artists approached collaboration. So a sort of, uh, you know, using technical analysis to advance these art historical questions and then another, um, another example is um, Catherine Campbell's um, investigation of the Patanir, uh, Joachim Patanir and Quentin Metzeis's Temptation of St. Anthony, which is often seen as kind of the er example of the first big, what, what's often called prestige collaboration in the Low Countries. So by two, two major masters working together such that both, both of their hands are recognizable. Um, and, but she, this is often invoked, but not really, um, examined in great depth to think about how collaboration is actually working at a visual level in this painting. Um, and it's a painting that uh, was viewed as a collaboration and noted as a collaboration quite early in its history, but not, we don't have sources unfortunately for very soon after it was made around 1520, but by, uh, by late in the 16th century, it shows up in the Spanish inventories and there it is referenced as um, the figures are by Matsais and the, the landscape is by Patanir. So there you do see a, a real interest in, um, in collaboration as such. And that's another way in which both the sources, but also sort of reconsidering visually of how that painting works. You know, it's, um, you see a scholar aiming to advance um, how not only we can theorize collaboration, but how it was thought about potentially then. Yeah, that, that's so interesting to see how how new technical um, approaches to to arts can help us also to understand this type of uh, of uh, question, and also something that interests me. You mentioned like the role of the the status or the the reputation of artists in the appreciation 
probably of, of uh, collaborative uh, artworks. Yeah, that's something that interests me a lot because you see, on the one hand, I think in this volume also you try to identify certain patterns of co collaboration. And, and then on the other uh, hand, there is uh, the agency of specific artists, uh, maybe in particular artists with a, with a more established uh, reputation. So to which degree is it individual for um, a specific artist of pair or a, a triplet, I don't know. Uh, yeah, in some cases. <laughs> of, of artists. So to which degree is it specific for a combination of, of two specific artists or can it be identified as a pattern? I don't know how this played a role in yeah. the, your considerations. No, it's a, a good question. I think um, in the course of the book, we see that the, both of these are at play in the Antwerp context in the 17th century, that on the one hand, there are practices that become relatively routine and common. And these are, in fact, this is part of the reason we think why they're not talked about always in, in the written sources, because they were so routine and so common that they were sort of not worthy of comment. Um, the ways in which artists were collaborating with one another and the involvement, for example, art dealers in facilitating and orchestrating some of these collaborations. So there clearly were a lot of ways in which this became very structural and certainly the, um, the rules of the Antwerp St. Luke's Guild helped facilitate this in Antwerp in ways that I think in other places it was not always as, as, as simple to, to work together. That being said, there are also certainly cases of artists collaborating in ways that, um, that are somewhat counter to the very widespread examples. So um, as I mentioned, um, the, our essay by uh, Sophia McCabe about um, Rotenhammer and Brill and Bruegel uh, working in, you know, um, at times long distance, even when these artists were not all in uh, Rome, they're, they're shipping copper plates to each other. That's a practice that clearly isn't intended to facilitate or it, you know, it, it doesn't, it's not cheaper or faster or easier to ship a, a plate and collaborate in that way. So you see, you definitely see counterexamples where collaboration clearly is playing a different role and it's not not um, kind of a, a structural uh, means to an end in the same, or means to a, means to a, a cheaper, faster end. But you also see, I think a, a really notable case of this is Peter Paul Rubens and the, the essay by Arnold Ballis addresses how Rubens collaborated and he did so as, as is typical of Rubens in ways that are exceptional and different than what other people did. And that while Rubens visual um, idiom spreads broadly and is you know, hugely imitated in Antwerp and, and beyond, um, his practices within his studio, I think were not copied to the same extent because they couldn't be because it was a lot of it was very specific to Rubens and what he could do. So the, I won't go into the details of this particular kinds of collaborations, but what Rubens did uh, with his colleagues and his workshop assistants and his pupils winds up being rather different. And so in that sense, yeah, his, his role is quite specific in particular. And I, I wonder in your book, how this, that, that tension between patterns that become and structural developments that become kind of standard in, in the, the Dutch context versus artists who seem to, approach genre in their own individual ways how that plays out 
Yes, I, I also think we have both. So on the one hand, you have this notion that was uh, used by or developed by Wayne Frenitz in his book on genre painting of conventionality. So this idea that as long as you repeat certain practices and, and also uh, motives and ways of, of painting subjects, that it becomes not a convention, but a conventionality. This is so something that is recognizable uh, for artists and also collectors uh, at the time. Uh, and uh, at, um, so we, we have some essays addressing that uh, type of approach, uh, but there's also uh, a whole section, the second sec section on uh, the agency of individual artists and how they dealt with their subject matter. So in the introduction, I talk about Jan Steen, who is of course quite interesting because we tend to see him as a, a genre painter, uh, which he did uh, pred predominantly, but at the same time, he painted portraits and history paintings. And what I argue is that uh, his skills in uh, depicting narratives, which is also something that uh, is, of course, evoked in the title of the exhibition, Ian Stein uh, as a storyteller. Uh, so, uh, so his uh, his skill skills as a, um, a storyteller are important and uh, evident across the different genres that he painted in, and uh, so that is a way to also detach him from the label of genre painter and look more at uh, particular skills, uh, which I think is sometimes more uh, useful. And some of the other authors also did this. And what is an interesting example is the essay by uh, Mandrei, uh, who talks about uh, Otto Marseus van Schrik, who sort of invented his own uh, um, genre of uh, Soto Bosco uh, paintings, uh, very particular. And he has some followers, but it is clearly his personal uh, way of dealing with the subject matter. So she goes into the different elements he may have borrowed from other parts, but how it is also intricately connected to his artistic identity. Uh, so that's an in interesting example, uh, I think. And we have also a very good article on um, Peter Saradam and uh, the way um, he mixes different subject matters, uh, traditions of depicting certain subjects uh, in his uh, church interiors, and not only on a formal level, but also with regard to the meaning uh, and the, the narrative, I would say, of these paintings. Um, so I think both elements uh, return. And it's also important to say that even though in this volume, we try to get rid of the framework of genre just to see what is underneath. Yeah. It doesn't mean that this framework is completely useless. So this framework uh, can be very useful to understand 17th century Dutch art, but it can also be the origin of uh, sort of false arguments about causality because artists at the time did not think with this framework in mind. Uh, and uh, I think in this volume, what I find very interesting is that uh, contributors came up with different solutions to deal with this discrepancy. And it's also, um, I, I kept the title questioning pictorial genres, exactly because we, we are not, not one author and not together uh, offering a new solution, but it's a variety of solutions. And I think it reflects in that way the, the current 
thoughts about um, about genres in in Dutch uh, art. So, so I guess one other um, sort of area of overlap of these books that uh, occurred um, to me was uh, the question of special artistic specialization. And in the context of collaboration, that's long been it's long been associated with collaboration, and it, it brings a sort of slightly negative connotation. This idea that artists had artists were collaborating with one another out of necessity. So I mentioned this at the beginning that this um, you know was one of the reasons collaboration I think had been ignored in a lot of the historiography for for many years. Um, this view that that it was only inspired by economic need and insufficient talent. So I, I was wondering um, that sort of where it sat a little bit in um, in the context of collaboration. And in the book, I think we see that scholars handle this differently and try to, 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 to bring it up as a more neutral topic. And certainly um, Anne Ouellette's essay, and she's um, been very, very critical in, in de the development of, of questions of or talking about collaboration in recent years, uh, starting with her exhibition at the Getty, um, uh, or about 15 years ago now. The specialization doesn't have to be a, a, a negative, although that's often how it was seen here. And I think part of the problem in, in, in the Flemish context was that someone like Rubens comes along and he could do everything and he's a master of everything and he's not a specialist. And there's a view that, that nothing can be better than being universally talented. So I was wondering how specialization comes into play in the genre book and the discourses, whether 17th century or the modern discourses around that. Well, I think you partially answer uh, the question uh, in your question, because uh, what is important, I think, uh, to keep in mind is that specialization is very much connected to this framework of genres. So to underline the idiosyncrasy of Dutch arts, uh, specialization and the fact that all these artists working in different uh, genres uh, existed uh, has been... Uh, overemphasized, I would say, because specialization in Dutch doesn't exist. You have the term uh, verkiezingen, uh, but it's not as exclusive or uh, clearly defined, I would say, as specialization. So artists are not doing a specialization. And, and I'm very interested in, in their own uh, individual artistic practices, how this plays out. Uh, and uh, uh, the article of Susanna Bartels also develops this idea that alongside specialization, uh, universality and versatil versatility uh, were uh, very important and valid uh, strategies to function on the Dutch art market. So, uh, yeah, so there's the historical uh, context and the historiography uh, there as well. Thank you, Marai and Abigail, for this interesting discussion. I'm sure many of our listeners are eager to read your new books. And in this regard, we have some great news. Until the 15th of January, Breepol's Publishers offers a special H&A podcast discount of 20% and free shipping on orders of many Antwerp hands and or questioning pictorial genres in Dutch 17th century art. Please find more information on our website, hnanews.org slash podcast. On this webpage, you will also find links to the table of contents of both books and literature projects mentioned in the podcast. H&A Podcast will return in 2022. For now, we wish you happy holidays.